Last week we talked about perspective. We talked about, you know what perspective is, right? It's a certain vantage point, a way, a, a place of seeing that puts everything else into perspective. If you're on, if you're on the battlefield, right? You want to you want to gain the high ground so that you can not only, of course, be in a good defensive position, but also so that you can see more clearly. You can see what's going on. And so last week we talked about Paul, Paul's perspective. Paul's the writer of this letter. Uh, he was an early church planter, and he was writing. He started the church in this city of Philippi. And so these were people he knew. They were friends of his. He's heard that there's some, there are some things going on. It seems there's some division in the church. And so Paul writes to them to give them encouragement. Now, what's interesting about Paul's vantage point is that he is under house arrest, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That doesn't seem like a very good place to have some perspective from. In fact, if I were under house arrest, if I were chained to a a Roman guard, I don't think that I would have a very good vantage point. I don't think that I would have a very good perspective. But Paul, for Paul, the chains don't hinder his perspective. In fact, they cause him to see it more clearly. And this is what we talked about last week where it's really captured in verse 20 of chapter 1. Let's see. Paul says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed House arrest is a pretty shameful place to be. Imprisoned is a pretty shameful place to be. But Paul says, I won't be ashamed, but with full courage, I expect that Christ will be magnified in my body, right? That that Christ will be made large in me. Christ will be glorified. He will be shown to be magnificent in me, whether I live or die. That's perspective. Paul goes on to say, Because for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Either way it goes, whether I live or whether I die, Christ is going to be magnificent. That's perspective. That's the perspective Paul gives to his friends in Philippi. And the reason he gives it is because he is about to, he's about to invite them to come join him on the mountaintop. He wants them to come up to where he is and to look out and to see what he sees so that they too will follow him, so that they too will will be encouraged and persevere. And so let's read what he says to them in verses 27 through 30, and then also what he says to us. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
Let's pray together. Our God and our King, we've read your word, we've heard your word. Now, Lord, we pray that you would open it up to us. That our hearing would not simply be with our physical ears, that our reading would not simply be with our physical eyes, but that you would give us the eyes and ears of faith, that your word would find purchase, that it would find a place in our hearts, and that you would bury it, and that it would grow up and bear fruit. So God, would you bless this time? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is the gist of Philippians 1, 27 through 30. This is, actually the main, this is actually the main part of the letter that Paul is getting into. And so we're actually going to look at this over a couple of weeks. Right here, we're going to talk about unity and courage, what it means to live courageously together. And then next week, we're going to talk about unity and humility, or better yet, how being humble aids us in our unity, or really is the key to uh, our unity But today we're going to see that the gospel, the good news, calls us to courageous unity in the face of hostility. Paul opens up by saying, live your true citizenship, right? He says, only this. This is the one thing he wants them to know, and this is probably as close to a purpose statement for Philippians as you can get. He says, only this, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. The the Greek word there is where we get our word politic from. It means uh, citizenship or or people. Um, This would have made sense to the Philippians because Philippi, unlike many of the places Paul went, Philippi was a Roman colony. It had a special status. So not everywhere in the Roman Empire was a full colony. For instance, where Jesus lived and did his ministry, it was in Judea was a part of the Roman Empire, but the Jews did not have status as citizens. That means they didn't have certain rights. They couldn't appeal to Caesar. They could be executed. They could be beaten, right? All of these things that applied to certain parts of the Roman Empire didn't apply to Philippi. Philippi was a colony. And not only was it a a full colony with full rights of citizenship, But it was also a place where many veterans of previous wars had retired to. And so it's safe to say that the people in Philippi knew a thing or two about living as worthy citizens. They understood what it meant to honor Rome and to have the the values of Caesar affect and impact their lives, right? We could say, to use the terminology of our day, we could say that they understood what it meant to be a true patriot of Rome, right? They knew what it meant to be worthy citizens. But Paul calls them to something different. Paul calls them to something higher. See, they they, they understood what it meant to have their identity formed by being Roman. Paul says, you don't have to renounce your Roman citizenship, but Paul says, you have a higher identity. Citizenship. Your identity is not merely that you are Roman or that you are a part of the Roman army. Your identity is not that you are simply a patriot of Rome. You are a citizen of heaven. That means you have a higher king 
than Caesar. And that means that the values of King Jesus are what ought to mold and shape your life. Not the values of the Roman Empire, not the values of King Caesar, but the values of King Jesus. Live as citizens worthy, not of Rome, but of the gospel. Your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And I think that is worth us pausing for just a second uh, for, a, for a word of, of caution and application. We need that same reminder, I think. My fear, you know, it was interesting that at the end of 2016, or through most of 2016, while we were on this presidential uh, high and we had all of, this, all of this back and forth and it looked as if um, Hillary Clinton may win the presidency, all of a sudden, uh, everyone, everyone, uh, everyone is up in arms and we were ready to go to battle and um, especially on the, on the conservative side and even numbers of my friends were preaching series through books like First Peter and books like Daniel talking about what it meant to live faithfully in a hostile world. And my fear, because I'm assuming that most of the people sitting in this room, though not all, and I'm aware of that, that most of the people in this room would call themselves conservatives and would call themselves, would probably vote Republican. My fear is that now that we have gotten what we want, we'll go back to sleep. That we'll assume that because the man we wanted is in the position of power, that everything will be hunky-dory and that we will forget we have a higher citizenship, that our citizenship is not merely to the United States of America. We are not merely patriots of this temporary kingdom, but we are citizens of a greater kingdom, a kingdom that will know no end and a king who will reign forever in justice, goodness, and peace. And so... When I hear Paul say only this, live as citizens worthy of the gospel, I'm reminded that this is not all that there is. And this is not my, this is but a temporary home. That the church at Philippi and the church in Clanton are but outposts of the kingdom of God in, on foreign soil. And so we have a foot, if you are a Christian, you have a foot in two kingdoms. Yes, you have an allegiance to the one, but there is a higher allegiance that we have. Paul says, live as worthy of the gospel. The gospel, we talk about the gospel a lot. What is gospel? Gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done to make you his own. And so when Paul says, live lives worthy of that gospel, what he means is, show by your life what Jesus is worth to you. Now we do this naturally, don't we? That just by our very lives, we show what we value the most. Whatever has the greatest value in our lives, that's what we tend to demonstrate. We do it by the way that we spend our time, by the way that we spend our money, etc., etc. Paul says, if Jesus is your great king, and if Jesus is your great treasure, then live a life that follows suit. Live your true citizenship. So what does that look like? Well, the first thing that Paul describes 
when he's, when he's describing what it looks like to live your true citizenship, is he says, live courageously together. To live the gospel in a worthy way means that we live in unity. Opposition can take a heavy toll on a family. Opposition can take a heavy toll on a community and on a person. There's a reason that divorce rates are higher among parents who have a disabled child. That amount of suffering and strife causes disunity. And that's what Paul's concerned about when he hears, when, when he's listening in and he hears reports from Philippi. There seem to be some rumblings. There seem to be some strife. And Paul is quick to encourage them. Even as he sees strife and the church in Rome in front of them, and we talked about that last week, Paul is quick to say, don't let it come in. Look at, um, look at verse 27. Paul says, whether I come and see you or an absent, whether I'm, whether I'm able to make it out of prison and see you or not, what I want to hear is not that you're bickering. I don't want to hear that you're bickering. I don't want to hear that there are factions in the church built up around celebrity preachers. That was a problem in Corinth. Everybody rallied around their choice of A-list preacher. Paul says, that's not what I want to hear. I don't want to hear... I would be sad to hear that there are divisions in your midst. What I want to hear is that you are standing firm in one spirit. He uses two parallel phrases. Standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I want to hear that you're standing firm. That word conjures up images of of uncompromising rootedness. I think of a Think of a defensive lineman, and because Alabama's defensive linemen are better than everybody else's, I think of Alabama's defensive linemen, right, in a defensive posture. Maybe offensive lines, probably, this is probably better, right? In a defensive posture, ready, ready to take on whatever comes their way, immovable, stand firm, planting your feet. Here I stand. I can do no other. Paul says stand firm in one spirit. He could mean the Holy Spirit. It's not clear. And when the Bible talks about what God has done for our salvation, this is a, this is a quick aside on the Trinity. When it talks about what God has done for our salvation, it talks in this way. The Father is the architect. He plans he, he makes the plan. The Son is the accomplisher. He completes the plan. And the Spirit is the applier. He takes what the Son, Jesus, has done, and He causes it to work in our hearts. He causes us to live this life that Jesus has, the salvation that Jesus has purchased for it. And so if Paul is saying, stand firm in one Spirit, what he's saying is, you have the same Holy Spirit. You are partakers of the same salvation, so stand firm in that. You're not divided. You're not 
You're not saved by rival kings. You belong to the same Jesus. Stand firm in that. He could mean the Holy Spirit, or he could simply mean the human spirit. So he's paralleling with one mind, basically saying, stand firm with heart and soul. Stand firm with all that you are. Either way, the the point is clear. Paul calls us to unity in the face of hostility. We are to live courageously. And we are to live courageously together. We are very good at being individuals. But the Christian life is not an individual effort. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom. We are in this together. Paul says, with one mind, striving side by side. That word, strive, that's one word in the Greek, striving side by side. And it's where we get our word. It, it basically means with athletes. What he's saying is, Join hands and compete together. The Christian life, though it has certain correspondence to a marathon, to a long race, yet it's a relay at the same time that we don't complete the race all by ourselves. We do it together. Paul's saying you can't stand firm on your own. You can't be courageous on your own. This is a team sport, so stand firm together. Be unified. What are we standing on? What do we unify around? Paul says we are unified around the faith of the gospel. Look again at the end of verse 27. With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is that? What does he he mean? What he's saying is that we are, we are rooted in and unified by the same message. When he talks about the faith of the gospel, he talks about the truth that the gospel brings us into. We are, Jesus' people are united by Jesus' word. And we are bound to him by the good news. In one sense, you could say the gospel, because the gospel brings us to Jesus, right? He is the rock on which we stand, and he is the tether that holds us together. And we are fighting against this all the time. We war against our own unity. And we do it in a couple of ways. One way is we strive for unity without the truth. Community without the gospel. I've used this example before. We're a part of a running club. Rebecca and I are here in um, Clanton, the Chilton Runners. And there's a lot. It's an interesting little community. Everybody's, everybody runs, and so there's this kind of common ground. Some are faster than others, but it's a group. It even has a Facebook page, right? But it's not the church. There's something missing. That even though we run together, 
we're not tethered to or rooted in anything other than just a hobby. And so when it comes to the storms and pressures of life, there's nothing to weigh anchor on. My country club, my bridge club, my running club, those things are not the church because those things are not rooted in the truth and bound by the truth. They are community without truth. But there's another way that we fight against our unity, and it is truth without unity. Or should we, maybe we say better than this, a, a love for the finer points of doctrine that causes us to disassociate from everybody who doesn't see things exactly the way that we see them. This is where we typically see disunity, not just in, not just in America, but across the world for the span of history. And you know this is to be true, right? You know that, I mean, almost naturally, you look for reasons not to associate with people different from you. That comes naturally. But unity, in a biblical sense, does not mean uniformity. When Paul talks about gospel unity, he's not saying that everybody has to look the same. In fact, one of the most startling things about the New Testament church is that you had Jews and Greeks, men and women, slaves and free, wealthy and poor. As these little churches sprung up, you had people from all walks of life in the same place Worshipping the same Lord. And so they were gathered around Jesus, but nothing else in their life circumstances looked the same. There were some people who were very wealthy and there were some who were very poor. Some were free, some were not. Some were Jews and had a background, some were not. Some had, some had never heard the, the Old Testament scriptures. They were pagans. They'd come from a life completely different from that. And yet they all came together under the banner of Jesus. That's unity. That's true gospel unity. That we are united around the truth. So the truth matters. It's our foundation. But it is not necessarily what divides us. And by that I mean that that we can gather around Jesus without agreeing on the secondary or, or tertiary points of doctrine that aren't, that aren't as clear. And we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about humility. So what does it look like? What does it look like to stand firm in the gospel and to strive side by side? I, think, I can think of two examples. I was listening to a, a Scottish man talk about life in the church in Scotland, which is where we get our heritage from and now, and now is mostly dead. And, and an old saying they had in the Church of Scotland was, if you're not fishing, you're fighting. Right? Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men. And isn't it interesting that if you're not fishing, you're fighting. That when I don't put my hand to the plow of Jesus' work, For some reason, I'm quick to put my hand to the sword and point it at my brother. 
If you're not fishing, you're fighting. Paul says, strive side by side for the faith, for the, for the faith of the gospel. Not, not strive face to face with each other, seeing which one of you can win. Strive together for the gospel. The enemy is out there. And then the second is an example uh, from my wife, Rebecca. Uh, in college, she was part of a campus ministry called Campus Outreach. And they, they took a, a cross-cultural project to Brazil. And one of the things that their team leader said, because they were going to be uh, working with students uh, who were a part of the, the School of Religion. Is that right? And so there was a heavy influence of communism, oddly enough, in this particular school that they were going to be working with. And if you don't know, one of the chief tenets of communism is that there is no God, right? Communism needs atheism to exist. So their team leader, before they went out to the campus to meet and talk with students, said something very interesting. He said, it is not your job to convince them that democracy is better than communism or that capitalism is better than communism. That's not what you're here to do. You're here to talk to them about Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, all the rest of that stuff will sort itself out. Your primary role is to engage them with the gospel, not to engage them with capitalism or whatever other sociological issues they want to engage you on. You keep bringing it back to the gospel. You keep bringing it back to Jesus. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And what impact will that have? Paul says, you will be unafraid in everything. You won't be afraid of anything from your opponents. Because another toll that opposition can take is that it causes us to be afraid and withdraw. Not only do we divide very easily... But we also fear very easily. Most of the conflicts that I see on a regular basis, including in my own life, have to do with fear. Fear of another person's opinion. Fear of what might happen. Fear of what has happened and could happen again. Some fears legitimate. Some fears not. But it's interesting to me how much we live by fear, out of reaction to fear. But Paul says, stand firm together on the gospel, and then you will know whose you are. You will know how firm the ground you stand on, and you won't have anything to be afraid of. Because if Jesus has lived and bled and died for me, what do you got? That's basically what Paul says in Romans 8. What do I have to fear from the world? Whether famine or danger or nakedness or sword? God's got this. Because he sent Jesus. And not not in a general sense of like, hey, God's in control, everything's going to be all right. No, personally, really, Jesus has bled for me. I am in Christ. And if I am in Christ, then there is nothing you've got on me. I can live fearlessly with conviction because of what Christ has done. 
Friend, I wonder, is that, is that where you are? Do you live out of fear? Or do you live in the purchased reality of the Son of God? So, how do you come by this conviction? How do we come by this conviction, this courage to persevere? Because here's the thing. When one kingdom invades another, there will be blood. Right? When we see this playing out now, several parts in our globe, when one kingdom invades another, there is hostility. There is resistance. And the same is true of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Jesus said as much. I mean, when the king himself, Jesus, came into the world, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he said, you will face opposition. In fact, you have to. If you are going to be a part of me, you must face opposition. It will be part of it. The king himself faced opposition and died. That's the purpose. And that was part of his mission. And so we are going to face hostility. And I think that is part of my, my concern for us in the West. That as we begin to face hostility, which is very much a part of biblical Christianity, all of a sudden we're shocked and surprised because we've been asleep for a very long time. We have been lulled into a false sense of security by good circumstances. And we are seeing things in the media now, all over the world, that our brothers and sisters have been dealing with for decades, but we just never saw it before. And now as we begin to experience it in our own country, of course, nothing to the degree that our brothers and sisters across the world experience it, but as we begin to experience pushback, we're shocked and we cry foul. And I'm telling you, there's no reason to be surprised. We wave a different banner, and it does not always coincide with the banner of the United States of America, and that's okay. And so hostility will come. Paul gives us some markers to know that we're on the right track, because usually when I meet resistance, I think I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing. I need to change my tactic. Something, something's wrong. I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be meeting this much resistance. But actually, Paul says, no, 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 no. You're, you're supposed to meet this much resistance. In fact, your courage in the face of resistance is a sign to you that you're on the right track. It's what he says in verse 28. When you're not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. This is one of those gifts from God. This is that, that final point. Live by the grace God has given you. One of the things God gives you if you're a Christian is when you meet opposition, you're on the right track. Paul says that's actually a sign. It's a sign to them of their destruction. It's a sign to your opponents that they do not know God. And it's a sign to you that you do. And that one day you will experience your full salvation. There's more we could say about that. Paul also says that you're in good company. 
Paul says, this is how I suffered. You saw this when I came to Philippi, when Paul came to Philippi in the book of Acts. As he preached the gospel, there was a a demon-possessed slave girl. And these businessmen in town were using her for financial gain. And she kept following Paul and crying out, and he found her to be a distraction. And so he expelled the demon from her. And the men who were using her for financial gain got angry because they'd lost their source of income. And so they have Paul arrested and beaten. He says that's what happens when the gospel comes into conflict with worldly values and standards. You're going to face hostility. You saw that I have it. I still have it because I'm in prison. And you know what? You're experiencing it too. You're on the right track. But most importantly, in verse 29, Paul says, Live in the grace God has given you. He says this. My translation says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe but also suffer. It has been granted. That's so vanilla. It's not the ordinary word for given. It's actually the word for grace. God has graced you with faith. Isn't it interesting that the Bible calls us to believe. It calls us to believe, have faith, trust. Those words are the same Greek word. Paul says, right, the, Bible, the Bible calls us to believe, while at the same time tells us that God gives us the ability to believe. Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are, God gives what he requires. He gives us faith. But that's not the only gift of grace there is. Suffering is also the grace of God. Is that bizarre? Or what? Paul says it is a gift of grace to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to just look at suffering like, oh, man, this is great, feels good, I'm just, I want to clap and sing and shout for joy. That's not what Paul's saying. But Paul is saying that suffering is a necessary part by which you come into your salvation. He would tell another church in the book of Acts uh, that by many tribulations we come into the kingdom of God. So it's not that suffering is good, And that even those who are oppressing us are not sinful, are not evil. But that Paul takes the evil of his, but that God takes the evil of his enemies. And uses that as a grace in our lives to make us more like Jesus. So not only is faith a gift, but so is suffering. So Paul would say, keep it up, stand firm, live courageously together on your own steam, because of your own strength, because you're right and everybody else is wrong. No, because of the grace of God that's at work in you. The reason all of this is true 
is because God has begun a good work. He sent His Son to die on our behalf. And if we live in Him, if we live and believe in Him, then He is doing something in us and showing something to the world that will magnify Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we wrestle to know how to reconcile your goodness and the suffering that your goodness often brings into our lives. We acknowledge, God, that it's a part of life in a fallen world, but it seems that there's so much more than that. Father, we acknowledge that we would prefer comfort and ease. That we would prefer someone else do the suffering. That someone else face hostility and rejection and loss. These things that we're afraid of. But then we hear that because of your good news... We have nothing to be afraid of. If the King of Heaven has entered into a broken world and defeated our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil, then what have we to fear? Why should we be afraid? So, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you cause us to stand firm? Cause us to root ourselves on the solid rock of Jesus. And cause us to band together, to link arms with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ so that we would strive together for the faith of the gospel. Not divided, not angry with one another, bitter with one another, warring with one another. Not face to face, but side by side. And as we do that, Lord, would you unify us? Would you unify us around what matters? that I wouldn't be so quick to stand on my own territory and defend what I think is important to me, but that I would yield that to you and to my brothers and sisters and so link arms. Would you indeed, Lord, make us a grace fellowship, make us a community of believers who know our sinfulness, And who know our Savior and are ready to extend the good news of peace to one another and to everyone we come in contact with. And as we do that, Lord, would you bring glory and honor to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name.